Today's scripture comes from James chapter 2. My brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of one wearing the fine clothes and say, Have a seat here, please, while to the one who is poor you say, Stand there, or sit at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partially, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For the one who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but if you murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say, you have faith, but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I, by my works, will show you my faith. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you senseless person, that faith apart from works is barren? Was not our ancestor Abraham justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see the faith was active along with his works, and faith was brought to completion by the works. Thus, the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Likewise, was not Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she welcomed the messengers and sent them out by another road? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Before we jump into the text for today, I want to spend a few moments with you exploring who James was, which is somewhat of a complicated question for some people. Um, More modern scholars in particular have suggested that James, the book, was written by all manner of different people. But one thing we do know is that fairly early in the existence of the church. The early church attributed the authorship of the book of James to James, the brother of Jesus. And so while biblicists can and and have had great debates over the authorship, for today, we're going to go with those who were closest to the book having been written. We're going to assume for today that the book of James was written by Jesus' brother, as the early church suggested it was. Then the question becomes, okay, this is Jesus' brother. Is it his older brother? 
Or is it his younger brother? Interestingly, that's a complex question as well. And it kind of depends on your theological tradition. You may remember a couple years ago during Christmas, I showed you some examples of a couple of different nativity sets. The major distinction between these nativity sets was the age Joseph was rendered as having been when the nativity occurred. In other words, one set had a Joseph who was relatively young, and the other set had a Joseph who was much older. Now, why was that? And what does it have anything to do with, with James? Well, it has a lot to do with James and his birth order. You see, the nativity sets that are rendered by Protestants, the nativity sets that are rendered with a younger Joseph, come from a Protestant tradition that says Mary uh, had Jesus as a virgin, and therefore all of his siblings must necessarily have come after Jesus. That makes sense. However, our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, those who render the Joseph and the Nativity scene as much older, believe not only that Mary was a virgin at the birth of Christ, but that she was perpetually a virgin throughout her life. That when she married Joseph, he was actually significantly older than she was, that he'd been married before and brought children from that marriage so that James would have been Jesus' stepbrother, his older stepbrother. This is an interesting distinction. Is it something worth going to war over? No. In the pantheon of Christian thoughts, it's a relatively minor difference. And because I'm a Protestant pastor, I want to assume with you for today that the book of James was written by the brother of Jesus and that James was Jesus' younger brother. You see, I know something about being a little brother. I'm the youngest of four children. And we can romanticize the nature of the relationships between siblings, but if you've ever been a younger brother or sister, you know there are some moments where you idolize your older sibling, and there are some moments you want to strangle them. It's interesting that we see this complex relationship between siblings played out between Jesus and his brothers in the Bible. There's a record of an interaction between Jesus and his brothers in John chapter 7. John chapter 7 would place it about two years into the ministry career of Jesus. So James and his brothers had heard Jesus, not only throughout the first 30 years of his life, but then the first couple of years of his ministry. And you might think, well, then they must have been deeply devoted followers of their brother. You'd be wrong. In John chapter 7, we read this. So his brothers, Jesus' brothers, said to him, leave here. Leave here. Leave this area of Galilee. Leave us. And go down to Judea, so your disciples may also see the works you are doing. For no one who wants to be widely known acts in secret. If you do these things, go show yourself to the world. And then look at verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. Not even his brothers believed in him. The Bible doesn't say that 
Some of his brothers didn't believe. The Bible says his brothers didn't believe in him. And so we must assume that James joined with the other brothers of Jesus in telling Jesus to go away. Leave this region. Leave our home. Go somewhere else. And so Jesus did. He left that region of Galilee and he traveled south to Jerusalem where ultimately he met with the cross. One must assume that throughout James' life, James replays that conversation recorded in John chapter 7 over and over again. He left because I sent him away. I imagine over the course of his life, James felt tremendous remorse over that action. And what's so fascinating is that's not the end of James' story, of course. Because as the Bible continues to unfold, what we see rendered in the book of Acts is that in Acts, James becomes an incredibly important figure, a transformational leader even in the early church. In Acts chapter 15, there's the first great debate in, Christ, in the Christian church. And the question at hand is, do people have to become Jewish before they can become Christians? And as you probably know, the Council of Jerusalem decided that wasn't the case. But ultimately, it was James who swayed the vote. James is the one who brought wisdom into that situation. Later in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 21, the Bible tells us that when Paul returns from one of his missionary journeys, he sought out one leader in particular, James. Over time, James becomes known as James the Righteous or James the Just. Became a profound leader in the early church. So what changed in him? In John chapter 7, he told his brother to just go away because James himself didn't believe in Jesus. What changed in him? Well, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul records after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to his brother James. James encountered the resurrected Christ, and he was never the same. The course of his life was altered, and the same thing happens for us. This little brother, who had for all intents and purposes turned his back on his big brother, sent him away. The little brother eventually discovered that he had been wrong. He begins to follow Christ, to lead the church, and he does so with a profoundly simple zeal. I think one could argue that of all the books in the New Testament, the book of James just might give us the clearest picture of Christ's intended message because nobody knew Jesus as well as his little brother did. James had tremendous zeal. As a family member, any family member would when trying to protect the, the legacy of a loved one, 
And so what we see as this little brother of Jesus writes his letter, the book of James, to the church, it's not a work of deep theology. James wasn't trained in the law the way that Paul had been trained in the law. But no biblical author knew Jesus better. James' book is a practical guide. If you want to truly live out the faith that my brother taught, James says, there are really five hallmarks of that true faith in Christ. In James chapter 1, James tells us that true faith endures trials. In James 2, he teaches that true faith involves action. Chapter 3, James teaches that real faith in Christ is marked by wisdom, not just words. Chapters 4 and 5, true faith connects humbly with God and is reigned over by love. The one who knew Jesus best in the Bible said the hallmark of faith Real relationship with Jesus involves endurance, action, wisdom, humility, and love. The book of James is a treasure received from a man who knew the Savior more completely than any other author in the Bible. And one of the things that James tells us is that if we are truly following Jesus, our lives will bear forth fruit if we are truly those who have faith in Christ. That faith will lead to action. We see that in our text from today, James chapter 2. <clears throat> James begins in chapter 2 by telling us not to buy into the false economy of ranking the people around us the false economy of human worth. He said that's what everybody else around us is, is going to try and do. But my brother taught us a different way. That God doesn't regard people based on their acquisitions, but rather by the state of their hearts. He goes on to say in verse 5, that God has chosen the poor. And that if we break any part of the law, we have broken every part of the law. If we break any part of the law, we have broken every part of the law. And that has to give us some concern, right? But notice how he concludes this section of James 2 in verse 12. James says, so speak, and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. Look at that last section. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Listen clearly to what James says. 
If we break one law, we break every law. What he's saying is we have to stop acting like we have a leg up on anybody else when it comes to morality or righteousness. If we're guilty of one, we're guilty of them all. So speak and act as if you live under the law of liberty. But what does that mean? What is the law of liberty? Is that the law of the Old Testament? No. The law of liberty is the law of Christ that sets us free. This law states quite simply that Jesus did for us what we simply could not do for ourselves. We are utterly, completely, absolutely dependent on Christ's mercy. Therefore, live with mercy towards others. When we fail to live with mercy towards others, it indicates that we have not yet understood what God has truly done for us. So here is the first radical statement for today. You and I possess zero moral high ground. None. You remember in John 8, a woman is brought before Jesus. She's thrown down at his feet. She's been brought there by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They asked Jesus to pronounce judgment on her because she had been caught in the act of adultery. We don't have to go through the entire story. The point is this, that the people who brought her to Jesus were not actually fulfilling the law. The law says that both the man and the woman caught in the act of adultery need to be put on trial. They only brought the woman. And what does Jesus do? Jesus helps them see that they all are guilty. He says, the one who is without sin may cast the first stone. In God's economy, everyone in the story needed grace equally. And James, the brother of Jesus, tells us the same thing. We all stand in need of grace. And we are therefore not entitled to sit in judgment of anyone else. But if we live by mercy... We can rejoice because mercy triumphs over judgment. James is not saying that we have to fulfill the law of the Old Testament. We can't do that. He's saying that we need to realize our inability to stand on our own, our absolute dependence on Jesus. And when we see ourselves that way, we stop seeing the divisions and the hierarchies among us. We start seeing those things that would unite us. Stop judging and show mercy. Anecdotally, church, I think one of the great tragedies of the COVID-19 experience is that it has insulated us to the point that we have stopped at times trusting other people. If they don't see the world as I do, they're no good. James tells us to be careful with that. 
Because in God's economy, in God's eyes, we are the same. We all need mercy and therefore are all called to show it. And then, James goes on to share what many would consider to be the heart of his letter to the church. We see it beginning in verse 14. James says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but do not have works? Can faith save you? And then he gives this great example. If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. James has been run through the ringer by theologians because of this passage. Martin Luther almost cut James out of the Bible, as Pastor Monica talked about last week. But here's what we need to understand. James, who knew Jesus so well, James doesn't say that faith is unimportant. No, here's what he says. He says, there is no such thing as faith without works. There's no such thing as faith without works. Does that mean the works cause us to have faith? No. It means, if I have faith in Jesus, it's going to get out of me. It's going to impact somebody, somewhere, and somehow. Church, I love this part of James because James is absolutely correct. There's a belief in our world that faith is supposed to be personal and private. And James is suggesting that that is absolutely impossible. We can't have true faith alive inside of us without it getting outside of us. I know it's not those works we do outside of us that saves us. It's Christ who saves us. But if Christ is at work in me, there will be evidence. No person, no person who wrote any other book in the Bible knew Jesus the way James did. And arguably, the most important statement in James' letter to the church is this one right here. Our faith has to have hands and it has to have feet. It has to make a real difference in a real world. Which leads us to the biggest question of the day for us. Does your life indicate that your faith is alive? Do your actions indicate that your faith is alive? How does the faith that lives inside of you make a difference in the world for Christ? <clears throat> I think about Mark and Luke. Not the authors of the Gospels, but 
the two great dudes who helped to lead our disciple ministries here at Ebenezer Church. 36-week courses, 36-week deep dives into Scripture. This is not a small endeavor. Disciples, an amazing course. We have more starting up in the fall. But they're, they're coming to an end right now. 36 weeks. Think about the way that those two men, through their leadership, have borne fruit in the lives of others. This year has not been an easy year to lead classes, I assure you. But those two guys have made their faith real. The same could be said of those who help lead our MOPS ministry or volunteer with Serve or Micah or Thurman Brisbane. Our children's Sunday school leaders, our Axis and TNT leaders, those who volunteer with our empty nest and older adults. Some of you go out of your way to show kindness to others, not just because it feels good, but because in showing kindness to another, we are showing the tremendous love of Christ. Some of you share your faith, not on street corners in some dispassionate way, but in the context of real relationship where it could cost you something. Works do not save us. We are saved by grace through faith alone. But where there is smoke, there is fire. And where there is faith, there is action. In this passage, the little brother of Jesus teaches a simple yet powerful lesson. Knowing we are saved by grace alone causes us to do two things. First, it causes us never to look down on another, for we are all beggars at the foot of the cross. And second, second, knowing that we are saved by grace, knowing all that God has done to rescue us, we cannot sit still. We can't keep it inside. Our faith must have arms and legs. So how is your faith being revealed? How are your actions demonstrating that faith to the world and bringing glory to Christ. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, I pray in this moment that your Holy Spirit would descend upon us afresh. I pray that you would convict us of any judgment that exists inside of us. Remind us that like all of humanity, we are beggars and paupers at the foot of the cross. But not only that, oh God. Remind us of the tremendous love that you have shown, demonstrated to save us. The debt that we owe, the love that you've given. And Father, help us take that next bold step. Help us take action. Not as a replacement for our faith, but as an outgrowth of it. Let us set this world ablaze with the light and hope of Christ Jesus. In the name and to the glory of our great God and soon coming King. Amen.